Revelation chapter 21. Uh, If you have your scriptures with you, turn there. Uh, We're going to be looking at the bookends of creation and a new creation. I almost got that mic that we used this morning, and I wanted to go around and ask some of our children that are here, what will heaven be like? Wouldn't you love to hear that perspective? Or maybe I just ask all of us, what are, what are your two most exhilarating memories, moments? Can you just write that down in your mind? I'll share one. Finally got to go to Disney World, and I was on the monorail. This was, you know, back in the 70s, and the monorail cut right through that hotel. And I'm, and I'm I mean, as a boy from rural Pennsylvania, overwhelmed, and I, I, can't, I can't even express the emotion. I'd never seen anything like that. I'm on this fantastic little, you know, glider going through a hotel and coming out into the open of a park that... I had only dreamed of. It was better than I expected. Maybe you have a similar memory like that. You know, this morning, I need the hope of heaven. And I think many of us in here need the hope of heaven. I need confidence that the what's next will be better than the here and now. When I exhale my final breath and my body lays still, what then? You ever think about that? A lot of people think that's it. You just, there's no consciousness anymore. And the reason they think that is because that happens to some of you every night for eight hours. Right? You're just, you're gone. Well, for some of you, it's two hours and then awake, and then an hour and then awake, right? Uh, but, but for those of us who are blessed, we sleep seven, eight hours in a row, uh, uninterrupted. But that's not what's next when you breathe your last breath. As we go to the far bookend of creation, I want you to look at Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4, because two things happen. First, John sees something, and then John hears something. Okay, what did he see? Look at verse 1, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven. By the way, most people's minds stop there. They only think of heaven as this place in the clouds. But they fail to understand there is also a new what? A new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. See, there's also a city coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's what John sees. He sees something new in kind. This isn't just a remodel. Or a new addition, it is something new since he says in verse 1, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now notice what he hears. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. It really echoes forward from Genesis when Adam and Eve would walk in the cool of the garden with God himself, uninterrupted, joyful, safe presence. And look at verse 4. Here's the quality of this place. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. I love it. This new place that comes down uh, will not contain certain things that some of you experienced this past week. There'll be no more tears. There will be no more sting from the loss of loved ones. There'll be no lingering effects of death. Isaiah 43 verse 19 says this, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? And in Isaiah 65, 17, it says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. I do believe there are certain things that we will remember and certain people as we praise God throughout all eternity. But I do not think there will be anything there that will enter into our minds that will trouble or create anxiety or our worst moments. Those, those former things shall not be remembered. There is a genre in writing and publishing that became very popular beginning in the 90s. And it's called Heaven Tourism. 90 Minutes in Heaven was probably the most popular one. It has sold 6.5 million copies in 46 different languages. It remained on the New York Times bestseller list for more than five years. There's another work titled Heaven is for Real. Taken from the account of a child named Colton, who was four years old at the time of his purported visit to heaven. Recently, and one that has made the news, was written by a boy named Alex. Alex Malarkey was almost killed in a car accident in 2004. He wrote, and some of you may have read this, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. A remarkable account of miracles and angels and life beyond this world. Amazon describes the book with this paragraph. I just want to read this. In 2004, Kevin Malarkey and his six-year-old son Alex suffered a horrific car accident. The impact from the crash paralyzed Alex, and medically speaking, it was unlikely that he could survive. I think that Alex has gone to be with Jesus, a friend told the stricken dad. But two months later, Alex woke from a coma with an incredible story to share of events at the accident scene and in the hospital while he was unconscious, of the angels who took him through the gates of heaven itself, of the unearthly music that sounded just terrible to a six-year-old. Do you remember thinking heaven like that? I remember going with my parents as a young boy and saying, I mean, the, the most difficult hymns to possibly sing. And then they tried to tell me that heaven is just going to be that without the end. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, who wants to go there and sing old English hymns for eternity? And all of a sudden, I was starting to process, you know, my, my new view on what heaven was really going to be like. Anyway, but the little boy, he records that unearthly music that sounded just terrible to a six-year-old. And most amazing of all, of meeting and talking to Jesus. The boy who came back from heaven is the New York Times best-selling true story of an ordinary boy's most extraordinary journey. As you see heaven and earth through Alex's eyes, you'll come away with new insights on miracles, life beyond this world, and the power of Father's love. Over one million copies have been sold. And I want to tell us 
and warn us of something called theological drift. Theological drift happens when we set God's Word aside and we rely in our personal experiences as the final authority for what we believe. Thankfully, when Alex Malarkey, we should have known by that last name, right? Everybody 47 and above gets that. Young people are like, well, anyway, we'll explain later. Uh, When Alex Malarkey was 16 years old, he revealed on his blog that he had lied. And he and his dad made it all up. He says, quote, I did not die. I did not go to heaven. Eugene Peterson rightly concludes this, quote, The new heaven and new earth is usually reduced to heaven and then completely misunderstood. The frequency with which St. John's vision of heaven is bloated by make-believe into an anti-biblical fantasy is one of the wonders of the world. I've had you turn in a place in our Bibles to the most extended description of heaven. And it's not very long. It's two chapters. Just like God's account of original creation is two chapters. I would love to have 66 books just on creation. I would love to have 66 books on what heaven is really going to be like. But I think in part, we we wouldn't even be able to understand it. Have you ever tried to just meditate on what the new heaven, new earth, new garden city would look like? And then realize that everything you're trying to imagine are things you've already experienced and seen. That it can't even be new. It's not a new construction. It's not a new design. It's simply some of the best things you can remember. When God is preparing something, what sounds like completely new, it would be, it would be like a two-year-old trying to comprehend the Amazon River or the Victoria Falls or Mount Everest. The grandeur, the size of it's beyond their comprehension. I remember on our back porch when we lived in Umlalongo, Kenya, uh, on a very clear day, we could see the tallest freestanding mountain in the world, Mount Kilimanjaro. You could see its snow cap from our porch in Kenya. We're seeing a mountain in Tanzania. We brought Micah home as a newborn to that house. Micah couldn't understand what that was. That's, that's like us, very educated, very mature people trying to understand what heaven is going to be like. It's like a three-year-old trying to comprehend multivariate calculus or quantum gravity. Or it'd be like me trying to understand algebra. No joke, I only made it to general math too. Okay, my gifts obviously were elsewhere. Perhaps there are so few descriptions of heaven because we just can't understand it yet, even if we were told. The biblical meta-narrative, right, from creation to new creation, begins and ends with two acts of divine creation. Genesis opens briefly with this statement, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. At the other end, the other bookend, Revelation 21 and 22, there is the anticipation of another divine recreation. I've, I've often thought that, that our descriptions of heaven, once we finally realize it, once we, it's a place, once we get there, once we experience it, it's going to be a lot like, 
I remember watching the scene in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire when Harry and his friends go to a fair and they realize their lodging is this like small, dingy, little canvas tent. And they go inside and it's huge and it's carpeted. It has a chandelier, plants, sofas. It's attractive and comfortable. And Harry says, I love magic. Because it's not what he was expecting. I think that's going to be somewhat of our response when we finally get to experience heaven in the presence of God and the Lamb. Matter of fact, Jesus, to encourage his disciples, the disciples were fearful. They knew Jesus was going to Jerusalem and Jesus had already told them several times that he was going to be, to be betrayed and scourged and die. And you know what truth Jesus used to encourage them? John 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Why shouldn't our hearts be troubled? He says this in verse 2. In my Father's house, in His dwelling, in His abode, there are many rooms. There are many residences or spaces. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. See, as we move from creation to new creation, these truths, these snapshots are intended to give us hope. I do know this, even though I can't give you a description outside of Revelation, uh, it will be better than any of us can imagine. It'll be better than any painting that you can paint or a book that describes it. All we keep doing is trying to describe that place with canvas tents. It's going to be beyond our imagination, beyond the most beautiful gardens you've ever seen or tropical coasts or rugged mountains. I know you'll be joyful. Some of you had very few opportunity this week to smile or to laugh or to feel the weight off of your heart. I know that in this place you will be joyful. The emotional burdens we carry, the discouragement that entraps us, the darkness that oppresses our soul, the, the, the things we want to run to or run from and escape, all the vexations about evil, all the nagging questions, gone. I know this, you'll be safe. No thieves, no kidnappers, no one to molest, no one to hurt, no one to accuse, no one to manipulate or intimidate or cause fear, no razor wire on top of walls, no secrets, no security systems. Safe like you've never been before. I know you'll be content. No raging desire, no chaos of heart, no afflicted mind, no unsatisfied longing, no emptiness, no nagging need, no disappointment. It will be heaven. You'll know love, perhaps for the first time in your life, a sustained, unconditional love. That void that so many people are trying to fill with artificial substitutes that can never bring deep and lasting joy, you will know love. 
In the new heaven, new earth, new garden city, there won't be any temptation, any sin, therefore no accusing conscience or shame or guilt or fear of judgment, no crying, no pain, no death. As God says in Isaiah 42.9, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. It's the picture of the promise of somebody who was planted and prepared And the rain comes down and you start to see the little green shoot just press gently through the topsoil. And there is the promise. And God says, I'm doing it and it's about to shoot forth. By the way, do you know how to get to this place? Jesus said, he is the way, the truth and the life. No one goes to the father except through him. What would a garden city planted by God look like? I'd love to know what the Garden of Eden looked like. We don't don't have a highly detailed description. Do you know Eden simply means delight? Garden of delight or house of pleasure? Genesis 2.8 says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed. Think back to God's original creation of that garden of delight. Do you know who was also helping create it, help form it? John 1.3 says, All things were made through Him, the Word, Jesus. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1.16 teaches that for by Him, Christ, all things were created. In Genesis 1.2 we are told this, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And I love this description. Scripture states in Genesis 2.10, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. More beautiful than the Amazon without the danger. More beautiful than the largest swamp in the world that I had the privilege of flying over from Kenya to the Sudan. And it's called the Sud. It looks like solid ground underneath, but if you look at the sun's angle, you can see water everywhere. Some say they have spotted dinosaurs in there, and a lot of people still go missing in there, trying to explore it. But because it's all floating material, the sun always changes. This will be more beautiful than the hanging gardens of Babylon. Let me just read a few things that the Bible mentions to help sort of stoke our imagination. Coconut and date palms. The towering cedar. The awkward baobab. Birds. I remember my Grammy talking to the birds in South Florida. It was very sweet. She would just go out and enjoy the warm sunlight of the morning and talk to the birds. And it seemed as though they would chirp back at her. Leviathan and behemoth, both of which the Bible explained in detail. The pig, sheep, goat, and the dog, cinnamon, garlic, mint, mustard, salt, apples, almonds, grapes, olives, pomegranates, raisins, all of which the Bible mentions, beans, cucumbers, lentils, onions, barley, bread, corn, wheat, fish, honey, meat, wine, dairy, pure relationships, joy, beauty, pleasure, remarkable angelic beings, and the very presence of God. What do you think the new Eden is going to look like? 
Is there any hope in your heart that Jesus went away 2,000 years ago to prepare a place for us as the divine architect? Can you imagine what that's going to look like? Look at Revelation 21. In verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city also on each side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. It's interesting. The river of the water of life. Flowing. Interesting picture. Its actual language matches Genesis 2.10. Where from Eden a river flowed out of it to water the garden. Listen to what Psalm 46, 4 says. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Or Zechariah 14, 8, that the living water shall flow out from Jerusalem. John is describing a pure source of life to an ancient readership whose water, if it was poisoned or there was a drought, they would die. He's talking about pure, refreshing and free water. Look at 22 verse 1. The river of the water of life bright as crystal. Life-giving, satisfying, uncontaminated. There is an extended description in Ezekiel 47, 8-10 that I won't read. But if you take a note, read that later. And Revelation 22 says that from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street it flows. I've seen, I've seen water flow through streets and it is not desirable. Here you have this picture of easy access, pure, near at hand, and available. Don't miss the invitation. Look at Revelation 22, verse 17. This is, this is, this is the last chapter of all 66 books of your Bible. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without Sometimes God creates with us a deep thirst so that we would actually desire things better than what we're trying to satisfy ourselves with. In John 4, Jesus tells the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I love the adverb in verse 22, verse 17, freely, without price. Are you thirsty? Here's the invitation. Drink. Romans 8:32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So you have the water of the river of life, and it moves to the tree of life. Look at verse 2. It says the water of life and then the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. 
The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. If you've ever been to Disney's Animal Kingdom, one of the center features is a tree. It's a baobab tree, one of my favorite trees, and it'll, it'll, it'll catch your attention. It's 145 feet tall, has over 8,000 fake branches, and 102,000 artificial leaves. And yet it's beautiful. And in this fake tree are carved all kinds of animals. You can go around and just sort of try to count every single animal that the artist put and carved there. Not surprisingly, this tree is called the tree of life. It's taken from the Lion King. And for Disney, the tree of life is not the revelation tree of life, but it's simply a tree that honors animals in the great place that they share in the great circle of life. It's actually a much older idea, entrenched in a lot of Indian religions. For them, life is not linear, but it's more cyclical. And they're honoring the animals and the part that they play in this circle of life. What they miss, then, is the true meaning of the tree of life. That, by the way, was compromised and disappeared in Genesis 3 when an accursed thing happened. And now here it appears again in a new creation, a new tree of life. Aren't you glad that, that God guarded the tree of life after Adam and Eve took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Aren't you glad that in our sin we weren't allowed to eat and live forever in that condition? And yet then made a way for our sin to be forgiven, for our curse to be broken. Scripture says that Jesus became a curse for us. The tree of life also matches Genesis 2.9 where it said it was in the midst of the garden. And now you have a better than Eden garden city coming down. And you have this feature, this promise. And, and I'm so glad this is attached to it because it says, and in this place there will no longer be anything accursed. It cannot be compromised or spoiled. Listen to um, Isaiah 35 verses 6 to 9. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. I love this. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. It's an incredible mixture of urban road portrayals with water metaphors and the beauty of purity. The mention of 12 kinds probably alludes to a time system that we're familiar with, even though it's eternity, but a 12-month calendar season for growing crops, meaning all the fruits will be there for all 12 months and there will be, there'll be plenty for everyone. Clean water, abundance of food. I think of the people who live up in, up in the Nuer region of southern Sudan where they have to walk several miles to dig holes near the Nile River to get something to drink and it's filthy. 
And our part in going to those people was to proclaim the gospel and provide nets that would actually filter out the guinea worm. Can you imagine reading something like this? where pure water is accessible and free and running down the streets. And on both sides, you have the the trees of life bearing their fruit consistently. Complete health. By the way, it says an interesting statement that it's for the healing of the nations. It's not that we will need to be healed, but that we will be depending on Jesus for complete health as the new norm. The river and trees are not in different corners of Jerusalem or in different countries or lying near a disputed border. There are no fences guarding the trees. No documents are needed to access the trees. No taxes charged for taking from the trees. There will be no walls guarding the river. There will be no water treatment plant. Old hurts and divisions are gone. Nationalism, racism, tribal divisions, political skirmishes, family discord, personal hurts, prejudice, and the long history of hate and warfare all healed. Look at verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed. Let me just read to you Galatians 3, 13 and 14. I quoted part of it, but I want you to hear this uh, in its text. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham, there is that Abrahamic covenant now being fulfilled in the new covenant, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. How is all this possible? Here's the best part. This is, we're going to bring this down to a conclusion. Look at verse 3, the second part. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. We get to dwell in the face of God and Jesus Christ. It's interesting. Last weekend, I was, I was reading back through Genesis 1 and 2. And then I got into Genesis 3. And after Adam and Eve chose to sin, God again comes walking in the garden and He says what? Where are you? It's not that He didn't know. He was asking a searching question. Where are you? And ever since man had been banished from the garden, it seems like we live in such a fallen and cursed world that even believers sometimes are asking God, what? Where are you? Where are you in all this mess and in all this evil? Well, He's gone away to prepare a place for us. And we will be able to dwell in His presence. Look at verse 4. They will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. All that means is He's, he's in our understanding and fully occupying our minds. Or as Isaiah 26.3 says, we will be at perfect peace because our minds are stayed on Him. And here's the promise. And, and one, one of the good news about his delay, 2 Peter 3.8, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, right? That new covenant promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Why? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's seeming 
delay, oftentimes a frustration to us, is actually a gracious gift as He waits upon those to call upon Him. I'm going to invite our music team forward. You know, we, the reason we believe this by faith, yes, by faith in the right object, Jesus Christ, but we also experience something of heaven in our heart. Let me read to you what Jesus said in John 17, verse 3. This is, right now, eternal life. What is? That they know you, the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Alex Malarkey, remember, remember him? He said this, I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. Anything, anything written by man cannot be infallible. It is only through repentance of your sins and a belief in Jesus as the Son of God who died for your sins, even though He committed none of His, so that you can be forgiven as you understand that you learn of heaven outside of what is written in the Bible, not by reading a work of man. Here's the invitation. Let the one who is thirsty come take the water of life freely. Revelation 22.4 They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. Let's pray.